I couldn't be religious and gay. It was impossible. I was being marketed as some sort of like teenage it girl. When a girl kissed me on my 18th birthday, a whole other world opened up to me. I was a minor nuisance. Eight Australians will tell you about the choices that have led them to unexpected places. These are some of the stories you will hear on Let Me Tell You, a podcast where real people tell incredible real stories. Look for Let Me Tell You and follow wherever you get your podcasts. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands I'm recording from and pay my respects to the Camaragal people of the Kulin Nation and their elders past and present. I also acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands you're listening from. This is Great Minds. In this bonus episode, we chat to Wallace Lee, who led the Tonglen meditation in this series. We chatted about the Tonglen practice, what it involves, and how a challenging time in Wallace's life led him to find meditation. Hi, my name is Sarah Malik, and I'm here with Wallace Lee, a meditation instructor at the Rigpa Center. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Sarah. So, Wallace, can you tell me a little bit about what is the Tonglen meditation? Sure. The Tongling practice is uh, is an ancient Tibetan Buddhist uh, practice to awaken compassion. It's part of the instructions from a body of teachings called Man Training, or in Tibetan Lojong, that was brought to Tibet by Atisha around the, the the first millennium, the turn of the first millennium. So Tong literally means to give, to let go, and Lang means to receive or to take. So Tonglen practice really is to reverse our inclination to avoid suffering and to seek pleasure. So instead we take on the suffering and pain of the other people and we give them happiness and well-being and peace of mind. Now Tonglen practice uses the medium of the breath. With every in-breath we visualize taking in the pain and suffering of the other people and with every out-breath we imagine sending out relief and well-being to this person. So in the process we become liberated from our age-old patterns of selfishness. So, Wallace, tell me about how transformative this practice is. What changes do you see in people after they do this practice? I think that the Tonglen practice is it's quite uh, transformational because normally when we see suffering in other people, we run away, you know. We acknowledge it and we just we don't want it to be on ourselves. But in Tonglen practice... We actually take on other people's suffering, you know, um, and we actually give them happiness, our own happiness and well-being. So fundamentally, it shifts our mindset. So why is it as a practice on compassion is because we actually take on other people's suffering. We actually really acknowledge that they exist. We don't block it out and we take them on and we exercise our generosity, our open-heartedness and give people, you know, our own happiness and our own well-being and really wish them well. So somehow it equalizes, you know, ourselves and others, and we exchange ourselves to the others. So that's why it's really quite powerful. Instead of the, this egocentric, self-cherishing ego mind, we open up, we invite other people in, in a very fundamentally generous way. Yeah, yeah I thought this was very powerful because it wasn't just the usual kind of toxic positivity that you can see yeah. in a lot of the wellness world where it's all about just me and being well and yeah. being positive. There's an actual alchemy there of transformation, of actually being there for someone who is in pain. 
being there for people um, who might be going through something. And that's something I think is really powerful. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I think the well-being industry, the focus very much is on the self. And so there's that, that sense of closeness about it. So you know, in this practice especially, it's actually opening it up. We're not actually trying to hold on to what nurtures us, what actually makes us successful, you know, happy. But we actually want to give that to other people. We equalise ourselves, you know, with the others. So I think that's what's most powerful and what's most transformational about it. Yeah, yeah you, you just hold space for somebody else. Exactly, yeah. So Wallace, can you tell me a bit about yourself? Mm. You're actually an immigrant to this country, which is a very SBS. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, yeah. I was born in Hong Kong and I came to Australia when I was a teenager I still remember the date. It was the 5th of December, 1979. And uh, and I finished high school here in the early 80s. When I was in Hong Kong, I never travelled any, you know, I haven't been to the Southern Hemisphere. So it was December. It was really hot in Hong Kong. It was very, very cold. So there was a, and, and in Australia at that time, is very empty. I felt in Hong Kong, was there were so many people. So there was just a complete shock to the system. Yeah, I can imagine. So you were this young teenager who arrived in Australia with your family in Sydney in the late 70s. Can you tell us a bit about what Australia was like in those times, in, in the 80s and 90s, uh, the era in which you grew up? Yeah, well, I mean, for me as a as a migrant who didn't speak a lot of English, it was quite alienating for me. At school, I was probably the only Chinese person there. So I went to a school. Uh, there were there were a lot of migrants, but they were mainly the Mediterranean migrants. So it was kind of isolating in that time. And even when I went to uni, I had some friends from Hong Kong, but there was this limited small circle, yeah. And you had this added dimension of also being a queer kid, an added element to the identity issue of being in a new country as well. Yeah, so there is a, definitely that element. So uh, because I think uh, as a as a as a gay person, it's actually quite challenging, also in the in the migrant in the Chinese migrant family as well. So I think there is that dimension plus the racial dimensions that was that was challenging. Yeah. Yeah. So fast forward, you're a young man. It's the late nineties. And you are, you know, doing the upward climb like a lot of us are in Mm -hmm. work and in life and taking care of family. And then you hit a crisis point. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. So uh, it was all of a sudden uh, there was one day that uh, I got a call that my mother went into hospital and I didn't know that was, you know, that was going to be serious. But then it turned out that she had aneurysm and had to be operated on the next day. Um, and, uh, and unfortunately, after that, she had uh, a couple of strokes uh, and then she never really recovered from it. And she became in- incapacitated and went into a nursing home and stayed there for many years. Uh, she was quite young, relatively speaking. She was, in, she was 58 only, yeah. How did that impact you? Oh, fundamentally. Um, I think I'd, uh, uh, first of all, there's the first taste of impermanence and immortality, you know, and I guess also just regret of time that we didn't spend together. At that time, not a lot of people around me understood and they were kind of busy with their lives. So it was also quite lonely as well in in that space. What was your mental health like at this time? I was depressed and alienated, um, but I, I st- also have a, a, a quite a busy job as well. So I just basically kept to myself for a number of years. Yeah, yeah. And what was the shift for you? 
was a shift, was finding some sort of refuge from Tibetan Buddhism uh, through an organization in Rigpa, and I started going to retreat. It took a long time for me to, you know, I, I don't think I ever quite accepted my mother's kind of illness throughout that time until much later, you know, um, yeah. And how did that process of finding a community and finding Buddhism and meditation, how did that change your life? I think uh, it didn't change day by day, so it wasn't kind of something that I noticed. But it's almost like, well, five years later, you look back and then it's go, oh, okay, well, I, I respond you know, differently to situation. I'm able to maintain some sort of uh, equilibrium in the face of, I guess, my own suffering and the sufferings around me. I was able to, I guess, really kind of open up and actually realising that it's not just me who's suffering, you know, all the people that are around me also have a story to, to share. So that sense of loneliness and isolation became much more universal as opposed to just me. So then you realise that, you know, I'm you know, not that different from everyone else. I guess that's that realisation helped me try to learn more, I guess, about why are we suffering? Why do we have to feel, you know, lonely? And um, why do we have to, you know, be isolated? So there are things that you can do and actually really try to understand that the causes of our suffering is quite universal, yeah. So you went from someone who was in a lot of pain, you were isolated, you were suffering, you were alone. And how did your life change just in terms of those elements? I guess through the, the organisations, through um, a group of, you know, what we call Sangha, a community of practitioners, I have new friends who, who, who supported me, and through the teachings and the teachers that I actually started to kind of, you know, gain a bit more confidence and understanding of my own suffering. And really, I think the, the important thing for me was actually acknowledging that I'm not the only person, you know, in the world's, you know, suffering. Everyone else is going through the same things. And things change, you know, how I felt, you know, at that point in time, the next day, you know, could be different. You know, our mood could be different. So just remembering that sense of impermanence, you know, impermanence, not just about suffering. So quite people think, oh, it's things are impermanent because they're thinking about what they are, what, what the, the happiness or things that they might lose. But impermanence is also with suffering as well, you know. So, you know, just remembering that, well, actually, today may be a bad day, but tomorrow may not be so bad. And, and ultimately, it, it will become better. And then it will become bad again. So it's kind of trying to find that, where, where is that anchor for that ups and downs? It's defining that anchor inside of us. And that's probably what's, what's, what helped me, yeah. Thank you so much, Wallace. That was brilliant. Loved hearing about you and your story. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Sarah.